This is the Education Gadfly Show. My Washington Capitals, I'm just kind of like this opportunistic fan, right? Oh, well. <laughs> Everyone's Washington Capitals. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You go to the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-hosts, the Alex Ovechkin of Education Policy, David Griffith. Hey, thanks, Mike. I've got the teeth for it, that's for sure. Oh, (laughs) nice one. All right. And we are very happy to welcome our special guest for this week, coming from the Foundation for Excellence in Education via her home in Arizona, Carla Phillips. Carla, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I look forward to spending some time with you. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you here. Carla is the Policy Director in Personalized Learning at the Foundation for Excellence in Education, otherwise known as Jeb Bush's group. Uh, you know, we, we always talk about his summit, the, uh, the summit being Jeb Fest, and I feel like we don't quite have the <laughs> same pithy term for FEE or Excel in Ed. You guys like to be called Excel in Ed, right? That's right. But uh, but we, we I feel like it should be like, like you know, Jeb, Jeb Org or something like that. But I guess that's just <laughs> that never is caught catchy, on. Mike. Yeah. That never I, caught I, on. I can't speaking, do that. <laughs> speaking of catching on, though, you know, we had a little scuffle a long time ago when, when you all came out with your blog that was going to be called The Education Gadfly. And uh, discerning <laughs> listeners will notice that that is awfully familiar to, uh, you know, to a longstanding <clears throat> weekly product here at Fordham. So you guys are very cordial. Instead, you published the Ed Fly, right? Yep, and, there's uh, plenty to go around. There it is. Uh, we like that imitation, the sincerest form of flattery. We will take <laughs> That's it. That's right. All right. Well, hey, we are excited to talk about what else but personalized learning. Let's do that in this week's Ed Reform Update. All right, Carla. Well, you know, personalized learning is one of those things that uh, everybody can say that they are for because there's no clear definition on it yet. Um, But let's dig in for you. Obviously, you must uh, be enthusiastic about uh, some of the benefits of personalized learning or else you wouldn't be the director of this policy area for Excel and Ed. What what is it when when you think about personalized learning? What is it for you that you think holds the most promise, especially let's say in, in sort of the short term, in the near future, uh, current state of technology, what, where do you think it has the most potential to help kids learn more? Well, honestly, and I know some other greater minds than I have talked about this in some blogs. In fact, it may have been one of yours. I think of it more as a, a verb. So it's really the flexibility and support schools and teachers need to personalize instruction for students. Mm. So I think that's what makes me most excited because it's really a recognition of, you know, a la Todd Rose and of average. Uh, that there is no mythical average and that all students are unique and different. And how much flexibility and support can we provide in order to really meet them where they are? All right. But as Dan Willingham wrote uh, this week, he has a review of, of the end of average out on Ed Surge. Uh, you know, I would say, look, this is not a new idea that kids are uh, different or that people are different from one another. And, and there's been interest in education for going back to John Dewey to try to, uh, you know, personalize education one way or another. So that's not necessarily new. Plus, you know, on layered on top of all this, we have this movement towards standards-based reform. We, many of us here at Fordham, I think many of you at Excel and I believe that it's uh, appropriate to have clear standards for what kids should know and be able to do, and that it's a progression as they get older and move their way through the system. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, for some people, they hear personalized learning and they say, oh, that just means a free-for-all. You know, let kids follow their interests wherever they may go. Uh, you know, is that such a good idea when, we're, especially when we're talking about younger kids? So, you know, when you think about this for, say, elementary school, middle school kids, uh, how does this, how does this work 
in a time that we also have standards. Well, as you already indicated, there is no definitive definition, so I'll definitely give it our viewpoint. One, we think the goal remains the same, right? It's still standards. It's still the, the goal of the states have dictated remains the same. And it's interesting that you asked that question because it came up on a panel I was at in Denver just yesterday. And one of my fellow panelists introduced this idea. I thought it was a cool concept of bounded choice. So it's not a free-for-all, whether you're Mm -hmm. talking about pay, student voice, choice agency, whatever term or concept you're talking about. It's flexibility, but within bounds. So the goals are still the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a critical piece. Which is that, hey, uh, this is David now. Which do you think, I mean, when you think about it, is the more... Uh, important or interesting dimension of that is it is it just about pacing is that what we're talking about here or is it um i mean i know that the concept of learning styles has been criticized and sort of controversial but i mean are we differentiating based on just the pace at which students are able to go or is it something to do with the approach or how they access the material um that is personalized at least for you For me, I think it's still all of the above, and I really think it depends on the individual school or the districts and their vision and their goals, as I've often said. It's whether it is personal learning is going to look very different in a small rural area versus a downtown urban high school. We think that's appropriate, whether it's the amount or uses of technology in that place or whether they focus more on project-based learning. But I think especially PACE. PACE has become such a tagline. And for us, we do believe mastery-based education or competency-based education is a must-have in a personalized learning system. We believe it's the foundation for a personalized system. And that's really how you kind of constrain that idea of that free-fall. That you have clearly outlined learning objectives, whether you call them competencies, performance objectives, and very clear, transparent rubrics of what students need to do to meet those goals. And from there, you can personalize their instruction in order for them to meet the goals. So it's almost a cart versus a horse thing, right? So this idea of students moving at their own pace has quickly become a tagline, but I think that's, I think it's the opposite. You want to provide flexibility and pace in order for them to achieve the goals, standards, competencies, whatever it is you're calling them. Well, I, you know, to shift back to younger kids, which is where my head is most of the time, in part because my own kids are younger in elementary school still. And look, I think the personalized pacing has a lot to go for it. You know, here at Fordham, we have for a long time been in favor of allowing high-achieving kids, especially low-income high-achieving kids, to be able to move at their own pace. And we worry many schools constrain kids uh, by making them stay with their, you know, other kids their same age, even if they're ready for much higher level material. And maybe this personalized learning thing could be a way to get around the ideological opposition of, of many schools from letting kids accelerate and go at their own pace. Um, you know, but what what is likely to happen is the same debate we can have in gifted and talented education and all the rest is that what if we have a situation where the kids who end up moving faster are in general the more affluent kids who are going to be disproportionately white and Asian and the kids who are going to go slower are going to be disproportionately low income kids and kids of color. You know, you can understand why the civil rights groups suddenly get very nervous about this, that you're going to have, uh, you know, what, what does that look like in an elementary school? And you start having the groupings that look very much uh, by race or by class, or do you end up having this system where in effect uh, the system is no longer being held accountable for helping all kids make enough, you know, quick progress. How do how do we make sense of all of this? Because at the end of the day, as a policy wonk, I feel like this is where it hits the rubber hits the road. Especially if we're going to keep requiring, you know, all fourth graders to take the fourth grade state assessment, whether they're at a sixth grade level or a second grade level. So how do you think through all those challenges, Carla? I, I know I just asked that you was about a, lot. a million different questions. <laughs> Let me try to unpack that layer by layer. <laughs> 
On the gifted side, when I'm out um, talking to states and schools that are either in the process of making the transition or thinking about it, they don't really think about it in terms of kids graduating earlier or faster, but really being able to allow their gifted and talented students, which I even try to bristle at those those terms, right, Um, go deeper. And at the high school level, maybe you are earning college credit, but it's also about going deeper and not just faster. And I think Todd even talks about that in his book too, that I have the idea that the, the smarter kids just go faster rather than deeper. But honestly, Mike, and I appreciate your perspective as a parent, I've got two as well, um, in 14 and 10, and one with special needs. So I see it through her lens. I see it through the special ed mm-hmm. lens, which you might argue is on the other side of that spectrum, right? And you know, the, the goal or the really the federal mandate for her to still be uh, exposed to grade level content, which at many yeah. levels I still support, but how difficult that is and how we hold schools accountable for that. So mm-hmm. honestly, I think the hardest part for all of us, especially in the ed reform movement, is there are still so many unknown answers to this, right? So if you think about the broader idea of, of innovation, personalized learning can be just one model or one way schools are trying to innovate. It may be project-based, it may be competency-based. There are a lot of unknown answers, which I think is uncomfortable for some of this because they're still, they're iterating. And that's the difficulty with personalized learning, especially when I talk to uh, policymakers or reporters is they want to know what it looks like. And I always say yeah. it's not really an it. It's the ability to, to provide flexibility to students, right? So from the feds to the states, quite frankly, the states to the schools and the schools to the teachers to meet those needs of those kids. And the reason I, I brush back against that idea of it being an it or a model is because it lends people to think that there's a prerequisite checklist of things that schools have to do and they can go, woohoo, I've mm-hmm. done all four of personalized learning now, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Where it's really a process of iteration, constantly just trying to figure out what they can do with its curriculum, scheduling, yep. Uh, yep. staffing, whatever it is they can do to better meet the needs of kids and the flexibility we can provide them to do that. All right. Hey, one last question. You know, certainly I'm excited about the competency-based idea also. And I noticed when when you go to see how this looks, especially at the high school level now, uh, and you look at uh, some of the leading schools out there doing personalized learning, they end up doing a lot of AP, right? It's it's uh, kids uh, tracking their own progress, making choices and all that. But the But the backbone is sometimes advanced placement, which of course is very rigorous and competency-based because of that exam. My my question I'm getting to is, you know, is it uh, is that going to get us back into this testing trap again? I mean, if if the bottom line is we want kids to be able to demonstrate that they, you know, what they know and not worry as much about seat time and the like, I don't see how you do that without even more testing than we have today. But uh, well, I have noticed testing is not very popular right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, great question as well. Now, when I think about competency-based and when I message that, To me, competency-based education or proficiency or mastery-based, we consider them synonymous, is really the key to what I call fixing the system of mixed messages and false signals that we've been giving students and families when they get credits and diplomas based on seat time and barely passing grades. So it's not just that they're taking an end-of-course exam, which would, you know, obviously an AP-type exam, but that they're actually demonstrating mastery on the key concepts and skills along the way. So if I see a high school that's really far along in implementation, I might see three algebra one teachers, right? Which we know historically, even as former students and our own students as well, everybody always knew who the harder teacher was, easier teacher, who waited more on exams, who took extra credit. But in a mastery-based system, those three Algebra one teachers have gotten together and said, okay, what are those 10 to 15 key concepts and skills they have to know before they're ready for Algebra two? Mm. 
and they commonly agree on a rubric that they're going to evaluate assignments and exams along the way. And so it's consistent and it's very transparent and it's very clear. And it's getting to those core competencies. Now I'm going to make up, make up some numbers. Maybe there's 50 standards in Algebra 1 and they're all critical and they all need to be taught. But what are those 10 to 15 things that they have to be able to show that they can do to get credit for the class so we know they're ready for Algebra 2? So it's not all just right, an so of course it, exam. And I use math as an easier example gotcha. that would apply to any course. Mm-hmm. All right. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. It does. Carla, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Again, Carla Phillips, who is the Policy Director in Personalized Learning at the Foundation for Excellence in Education, aka Jeb Group or Jeb Org. I'm trying. I'm trying to brand it, David. <laughs> David's laughing at me. It's, it still hasn't taken off. Someday. I'm just sorry I'm for laughing Carla at you here. too. Yeah. All right. Well, Carla, if not before, I look forward to seeing you at Jeb Fest this fall. Great. I look forward to meeting you in person. All right. Thanks so much, Carla. Now it's time for everyone's favorite. It's Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. And congratulations on your Washington Capitals. Oh, is it my Washington Capitals? I'm just kind of like this opportunistic fan, right? Oh, well. <laughs> everyone's Washington Capitals. You were now. excited last week about I them. I was. And, yes. and there's a great parade today, so am I supposed <sighs> to do yeah, that? Very exciting. Yes. No, I know. Good good for Washington. And yes, uh, I was right. on the Metro this morning. The hordes of fans like and families in took red. Everybody work today. Weren't you feeling like, am I the only person going to I work did. today? A little bit, yeah. I felt that way too, Mike. Yeah, yeah. And kids taking off uh, from school. I mean, how can they do right? this like, on the last week They better be out. Are they out of school yet? That's what I was hoping. No, a lot of them are still, we're still in. It feels like this school year is just going on and oh, on and man. on. I can imagine teachers uh, feel that uh, Yeah, they're, they're all watching movies, I got to tell you. Parents, oh, sorry to say. Oh, but. Yeah. oh, yeah. There's very little learning going on. Yes. Uh, yes. Thank you, Governor Hogan. <laughs> For making us start after Labor Day. Right. I mean, no, I mean, look, to, to have these days where the kids go to school and then they go to swim team practice, it just feels unnatural. Right. It does feel a little odd, doesn't yeah. it? I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. So, Anywho. It's, it's, a, it's a problem, I guess, maybe a first world problem. But yeah. Uh, yeah. still, uh, can we still say that? There's been some debate about whether first world problem is a phrase that's now like passe. And in other news, the research <laughs> myth. <laughs> oh, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, Amber, what you got for us this week? So we have got another CTE study. We love these CTE studies, right? This is not about concussions. This uh, is about career and technical career education. Career and technical education. You got it. A uh, new study in the AEFP called Vocational and Career Tech. I guess now they're combining them because they used to call it vocational uh-huh. and it were, that's what it used to be called. But By the way, can you tell that I've been working all day totally by myself because <laughs> the Fordham no office is in exile right now as we do construction and I've had no interaction action with anybody so that's why i'm so chatty well we're here to change it uh career tech education american high schools the value of depth over breath. Love Ooh. that, right? Ooh, yeah. Uh, it uses detailed longitudinal transcript and labor market information for a cohort of respondents in the National Longitudinal Survey 1997 to look at the benefits of CTE courses on long-term outcomes, kind of stuff that we mm-hmm. did once upon a time here with Sean yeah. Doherty. But anyway, new, newer study. 97. Um, 97, wow. they're following these kids. Rich set of background ability measures that can be used as controls. A um, bunch of lo- location cohort effects. Like they can control for a lot of different things that we think might be going on. I can talk about that later. Uh, includes about 9,000 individuals who were ages 12 to 18 when they were first interviewed in 1997. The survey is representative of all American youth at that time, mm-hmm. and respondents have been followed annually 
with information on their educational attainment, labor market experience, and family formation. Wow. High school transcripts were collected from their high schools. In total, we had transcript data for about a little over 6,000 respondents. And then they went in and they coded courses in CTE and vocational ed, high and low. So lower level courses are just like, you know, first course, introductory type courses. Uh, upper level were beyond the introductory. They had things like second or later specialty course or this thing called co-op work experience where they're really going in and do these internships. Um, and then they had to do the wage analysis for a smaller number of the sample because they didn't have the, the wage record data for everybody. All right. Key finding, more vocational courses are associated with higher wages mm -hmm. on the order of 1.8 to 2.0% for each year of specialized, specialized keyword, vocational coursework. More courses are also associated with lower incidence of idleness. Love that. Hmm. Uh, idleness is defined as neither working nor in school. So you're, mm -hmm. you're just idle on the survey. Yeah. Um, we, we see a lot of this at our WeWork space uh, while we're in exile. <laughs> yeah, there was an incident just a few minutes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh -oh. yeah. <laughs> uh, yet, these returns are not uniformly distributed across all CTE course takers. So in other words, and they look at sort of some of the heterogeneity and some of the results. They separate, remember, this coursework by high and low mm -hmm. levels. And they find that wage gains are driven entirely by the upper level courses, mm -hmm. uh, largely in technical fields and among non-college graduates. Interesting. Interesting. Specifically, they estimate no wage gain to an additional introductory level CTE yeah. course. And then I know we'd be interested in like, okay, how, what, what, what CTE stuff are we talking about? Um, they find that the wage gains are largely driven by transportation and industry, including construction trades, mechanics, repair, transportation and production, business and management, and healthcare. Uh, finally, they find little to no evidence that vocational coursework work decreases the likelihood of college graduation. We've seen this in other studies. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, while the labor market value or wage gains of non-vocational coursework is in fact explained by those college going and graduation mm -hmm. when you control for those things, um, the value of the upper level vocational coursework is unaffected when you account for mm -hmm. college enrollment and completion, which signals that these courses actually have real value in the labor market. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then they do all this uh, alternative hypothesis testing to say, okay, is it that students are sorting themselves into these vocational courses? Is that negating the benefit that these kids would otherwise, that they're being funneled into the, some of these mm -hmm. courses? And they and they determined that, no, they're not. That these kids are actually self-selecting into these mm -hmm. courses without being funneled. And then they do a bunch of recommendations. But I think key uh, among their recommendations was we should not limit students' ability to take these courses by having a bunch of, um, you know, introductory requirements um, mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. Uh, and actually what we've heard before is it's really important to specialize, concentrate, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. and not just take a bunch of random courses and a bunch of different topics without like making it add up to something. Nice. Sorry, taking a spattering of these courses That's doesn't right. help that you've, right. And, and this may, seems to say that if you are a high school or a regional CTE uh, center, you want to figure out what are the labor, the, the big in-demand careers in the local labor market, mm -hmm. and then design your pathways around those, maybe a limited number of pathways, mm -hmm. right? Having unlimited choice of pathways uh, probably right. doesn't make sense. Because that then you want to funnel kids into a focus. And you always try to plug an upcoming study. Uh, well, we do here. have a study about this. That <laughs> yes. is true. Coming Related question. No, yes. And, and David, what's fascinating about this is, you know, this was back in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. This is when many of us had given up on CTE, right? right? Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, we're worried about this was low quality and we we're all into college for all. And so, uh, right. and, and, you know, with the sense that a lot of these programs aren't necessarily all that great. Right. 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 But still, you get a benefit but from that. But was it odd that it was driven? I mean, I was thinking driven by transportation industry right and you wonder whether some of these newer fields that we're talking about 
you know, were really, I mean, how much were they a big player yeah. in the 90s, right? Yeah. Um, These kids, they graduated from high school in 97, or that was when they were freshmen? They were 12 to mm-hmm. 18, right? Okay. Um, so was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there, yeah. Okay, and they followed them for how long? Uh, I think they followed, I, I, when I was reading it, it sounded like they were still following it, like okay. present tense, they follow mm-hmm. them annually. Okay. I'm like, wow. I mean, to me, that's probably like, I, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about in this day, but to me, that's really interesting and exciting because... Mm-hmm sort of the counter argument that you hear against CTE, right, is that there might be sort of these sleeper effects, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, if a kid specializes too much, mm-hmm. right, um, and the economy changes, right, right, then you're left with essentially right. like the human capital equivalent right. of stranded right. assets, yeah, right? right? Eric Anishek has made this argument. Right. right. And, and so, I mean, it's valid and you have to consider it, but it mm-hmm. sounds like we're 15 to 20 years in Out. That's right. and those aren't showing up. That's right. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. exciting. Yeah, it's very yeah. exciting. Well, I think so. all right. Well, here we go. <laughs> Look, there, there's a reason that CTE is popular again. Yeah. And it's because it's showing that it has some real, real impact. Plus, it's just like common sense. Uh, right. You know, that not every kid needs to be preparing for I mean, a, but we have, a have philosophy we, degree. But have we gotten the point that it needs to be um, concentrated? Because I feel like yeah. I, I was laughing because Checker had this comment on a paper we were circulating that, that his, he did a vocational survey and it came up that he should be a forest ranger. Remember that comment? <laughs> I mean, it. it's like, do that we tracks though? I mean, yeah, so. I mean, do we feel like kids in ninth or tenth grade are still trying to figure out what they want to be when they yeah. grow up and should take a smattering yeah. of these things? I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure. Can we fault these kids for taking a smattering well, of these things? And a little courses? bit of that is okay. And then at some point, you want to try to focus. get serious. But yeah. here's the challenge: is sometimes you hear people say, "Well, it should be college and career readiness." Right. So we want kids to go all the way through twelfth grade, still taking English four and you know advanced mm-hmm. math and this science and that. And then you say, well, then there's not enough time to really mm-hmm. go deep on CTE. I mean, this is why, I don't know, I'm just convinced that by the time most kids are in 11th or 12th grade, we've got to allow them yeah. to do, uh, you know, really focus on one or the other. Because yeah. again, the, the main point is they need to focus. Yeah. Well, 11th and 12th grade is different than 9th and 10th, right? Yeah. So, sure. yeah, I think that's right. Truer words were never said. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but ninth grade, like... That strikes me as a true statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of things that are less clear in ninth and tenth grade than 11th and 12th, but anyway. All right. Well, one thing that's clear is that we are out of time, yes. thanks to all my babblings. So, until next week... I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas P. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C., For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.